ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When calculating a sentence, a judge weighs up many considerations, including remorse. But is it really possible to determine if an offender is or isn't genuinely sorry? Hi, Damien Carrick here. Today on The Law Report, I'm joined by three leading thinkers and researchers. Law Professor Susan Bandis from DePaul University in Chicago. Law and Society Emeritus Professor Richard Weissman from York University in Toronto. And also Kate Rossmanis, Associate Professor in Media and Cultural Studies at Macquarie University. All three are either editors and or contributors to a new book titled Remorse and Criminal Justice. A warning, this conversation includes discussion about suicide. Kate Rossmanis, when and how is remorse taken into account by judges when they determine a sentence? And why do the courts do this? Yeah, so first of all, in most common law jurisdictions worldwide, remorse is a mitigating factor at sentence. And what that means is that if a judge is convinced that someone's remorse is genuine, that judge is legally obliged to take it into account when sentencing someone and to give them a sort of a a, a mitigated sentence, a reduced sentence of some kind. So it's after either a plea of guilty or if someone's found guilty after a trial that's when technically remorse is supposed to make its way into the process. Some years ago, you interviewed, I think, 20 New South Wales judges and magistrates. What do judges look for when trying to determine if someone is genuinely remorseful? What Give me a spread of some of the responses you received or some of what you learnt from your interactions with these judges. Judges are looking for different things. <laughs> But it's also really dependent on the kind of offence that's been committed. It depends on, you know, whether someone went through a trial process when having not guilty or whether they've, you know, did they just walk into a police station one day and say, I'm just going to now walk in and confess. That is going to look very different to a judge at the level of sentencing than if, if someone pleads guilty in the face of overwhelming evidence against them. Certainly in New South Wales, and I think I can say this for most, all, all probably Australian jurisdictions, you need to give evidence of your remorse. There has to be some kind of evidence. So it can't be just declarations from the bar table. Someone's legal counsel can't just get up and say, well, my client is terribly remorseful. There actually has to be some kind of material evidence of some kind. You know, if you've defrauded someone, it might be that you've repaid the money. Um, It might be that you write a letter to the court. It could be that a psychologist um, or a psychiatrist maybe gives expert testimony explaining that you are suffering deeply about what you've done. You know, you you are deeply remorseful. You're showing you're being plagued by feelings of terrible guilt and shame and remorse about your acts. And, and Richard Weissman, you reviewed, I think, 178 Canadian cases at one point in which remorse of an offender was in dispute or looked at closely. What did you learn from that study? What I learned is that It's extremely hard to distinguish between true remorse and remorse that's feigned in order to get a benefit, and that there's really no consensus about exactly what to look for when you're uh, looking at remorse. But I have to say uh, one other point. What I observed was that the more grave the offense, the more intense the scrutiny directed towards the offender, 
In other words, if somebody committed a crime that was in Canada would be a, sem a summary offense, not a serious offense, there was much less exploration as to the intensity of the remorse or the validity of the remorse, uh, how intense the remorse was. Whereas uh, when the crime was considered more grave, there was more debate and more searching for whether the remorse was genuine or not. And I suppose that's because the sentence which you're going to get for a more serious crime will be much higher. So the mitigating factor or the importance of the mitigating factor becomes quite important in terms of calculating the, the, the sentence. Yeah, I think that's uh, obviously an important factor in that. But there's also an idea <clears throat> that you can be too remorseful. Uh, there was one situation where a woman was charged with embezzling funds, not a large number of funds, from the place where she worked, and she was suicidal. And the conclusion of the judge was that she's remorseful to the nth degree. She's more remorseful than she has to be. So there's a notion of a proportionality that, you know, if you're to break and enter or something like that, you don't have to be brought to the point of killing yourself as a result of it. But if it's a more serious offense, for such as driving while intoxicated that might result in the death of other people, then the fact that you might be suicidal as a result of it is considered to be more proportional to the gravity of the offense. So there's that element of it as well, that, you know, what degree of remorse is appropriate because of the harm that you've done in the crime you've been convicted for. Are you suggesting that sometimes remorse can be a form of self-absorption? It can be a form of kind of, I don't know, ego, as well as sometimes being uh, totally artificial. So, so a judge has to work out how genuine and heartfelt and meaningful remorse is. One of the considerations that courts look for People are going to feel bad just because they've been arrested, just because of the consequences of their crime. Because they've been caught. Because they've been caught. So they, there's a certain amount of distress just because of their rapid change in situation. So you want to distinguish whether the bad feelings that they're experiencing are as a result of compassion for the victim or because of the harm and because of the difficulties they're experiencing. So that's something that courts take into consideration. Of course, it's not that easy to distinguish when people are feeling bad about themselves or feeling depressed, it's not that easy unless you engage in some kind of fairly intense exploration to distinguish between why a person, to actually find out why a person is feeling badly about themselves. But that's one of the considerations uh, that, that, that people have. Susan Bandis, uh, you're a, a former defence lawyer in the USA. Have there been studies about how judges identify and quantify remorse in your country? I think there was one um, of, of judges in Connecticut a, a few years ago. That was also 20 judges. And most of the judges believed that they were capable of evaluating remorse, not all. And so uh, the question for those who believed they were capable was, what do you look for? And that's when it got really fascinating. About half of them said, well, for example, if the defendant makes direct eye contact with me, then I feel that he's sincere and trustworthy and, uh, and remorseful. And the other half said, if the defendant looks down at the floor and doesn't meet my eyes, I feel that he's uh, respectful and trustworthy and therefore remorseful. So that's just one example. And there were a number of those about the kinds of facial indicia, body language, eye contact, those sorts of things. And of course, you know, that there are a couple of points to draw from that, uh, other than the obvious point that there's absolutely no scientific way of measuring remorse. One is you can't just talk about what the defendant feels or 
purports to feel. You have to talk. And I think this goes right back to Richard's point about what the expectations of the judge or the juror are about what a remorseful person looks like. And is that culturally specific? I'm imagining that different cultures have different approaches to expressing emotion or giving eye contact. And it would be super dangerous to superimpose a, an Anglo-American, Anglo-Australian, Anglo-Canadian set of expectations on everyone. Exactly right. Yeah, you've... Um anticipated exactly where I was going. And that is, yes, it's very dangerous, you know, and without trying to make sort of, um, you know, generalizations about different cultures, certainly there, there are lots of different expectations about things like eye contact. And then in the United States, we have studies about several other things that I just want to mention here. One is um, juveniles who often do not know how to make appropriate uh, facial expressions or, you know, have a sort of veneer of toughness that won't allow them to show what the judge considers to be remorse, which then leads judges to categorize them as remorseless super predators. So, you know, we have to look at this as a two-way street. You know, it's not that remorse is a thing in the world that can simply be evaluated. It's that it's a, it's a dyadic, interpretive dance between the evaluator and the evaluated. It's offered and it's received differently by different groups. Exactly right. You highlight that this task is complicated enough for experienced judges, but Susan Bandis, in the USA, in some states, I understand juries not only decide if an accused is guilty or not guilty, but in capital punishment cases, they also decide whether or not an offender should receive the death penalty, to tough enough and troubling enough for judges, how well equipped are jurors to, to assess that? Under uh, the uh, constitutional interpretation, um, any state that has the death penalty has got to let the jury decide sentence. So all the, all the capital states have that same situation. And here's what, what happens. In most cases, the defendant chooses not to testify at what we call the penalty phase, the sentencing phase. They're allowed to, of course, but generally it's strategically decided that they should not for reasons I could get into. And so now just picture the defendant is sitting there at counsel table not testifying. So the juror never hears his voice and he is watching all this, you know, usually quite heartbreaking and horrific evidence unfolding. And the jury is watching the face and body language of the defendant. Nobody actually instructs the jury about remorse. Nobody tells them to look for it or not to look for it for that matter. They go into the jury room and they are all absolutely positive that this is one of their main jobs is to figure out whether the defendant is remorseful. And they are also positive that they can do this by dissecting his facial expression and his body language. And presumably you'd be very sceptical of that ability. I don't even have to be sceptical. I can just look at the empirical evidence, which um, thus far, and I'm not saying that we won't get more empirical evidence. In fact, I would love it if we had it. But as things stand, there is no evidence among the researchers who look at the ability to tell emotion from facial expression. There is zero evidence that remorse can be evaluated that way. And it makes sense because if you think about remorse, it's not just like a passing phase of fit of anger, you know, or a flash of joy. It's an unfolding process. You have to come to terms with the gravity of what you've done. You have to decide that you want to atone for it. This takes time. So the idea that the jury can evaluate this kind of 
unfolding deep process by watching someone's face in a courtroom, there is no evidence to support that. Okay, I'd briefly like to, to kind of cycle back and, and get uh, the views of, of the, the other two of you about uh, race and, and culture. Uh, Richard Weissman, um, what, what are your thoughts briefly about uh, Indigenous Canadians and, and Kate Ross-Manneth about, say, Indigenous Australians? For a long time now, there's been a recognition that Indigenous Canadians don't perform remorse according to judicial expectations. What judges and... Uh, uh, other persons find is that the response is one of silence rather than any kind of affirmation of uh, of remorseful feelings and so forth. And that's to the detriment in terms of sentencing. It has impacts later on. I've been looking at a category called dangerous offender, and I find that Indigenous Canadians are more likely to be classified with antisocial personality disorder which is indicative of an inability to feel remorse, one of the characteristics of it. So the the observation that persons have been making is that the whole choreography of the courtroom is unsuited to First Nations defendants. The way to think about this is that the history and legacy of, of First Nations is that there have been a sort of assumptions about them that go back historically that are very prejudicial to how people see them. And it's only recently that those assumptions have been questioned. So um, why First Nations persons would be silent, uh, why they would not trust the system, people are beginning to understand that there are reasons for it that are not just cultural, but they're also based on historical experience. And now there's kind of an exploration and a recognition of that. How do we change the circumstance and how do we deal with the injuries that have been given to this uh, for this group and that help account for the great disparity of uh, Indigenous Canadians in our prisons, the greater disparity of that that in proportion to their population. Gee, similar story uh, here in Australia. Kate Gross-Ramanath, when you talked to ma- judges and magistrates, I think one of them mentioned that he, I'm assuming it was a he, wouldn't feel able to decipher the remorse, I think, of an Asian Australian or Chinese Australian, as well as maybe Indigenous Australians. So, so there was some kind of recognition that reading somebody is culturally specific. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So certainly when I was speaking with judges and magistrates, you sort of wade into this incredibly awkward area because something like remorse assessment is supposed to be something that can kind of just be applied to across any offender who comes before the court. And of course, it's not as simple as that. When I spoke to judges and magistrates, um, the whole question of cultural assumptions or, you know, cross-cultural communication or all these different sort of terms got started, started to float around inside the interview as we were talking is looking at someone straight in the eye, a sign of respect or not respect, I don't know. We were sort of started to wade into kind of body um, language indices in terms of how people were performing in the courtroom. I think in terms of Australia, there are national judicial education programs and we do have quite, I think there is quite an active program in this in this country and judges and magistrates are genuinely trying to grapple with this. So there, I think there are there are moves to really try to understand this and to understand just the ways in which certain groups are severely disadvantaged when they aren't able to perform, as one judge called it, you know, the signature tunes of remorse. 
And that judge saying that wasn't suggesting that these people should learn the signature tunes of remorse. The judge was saying, I think there is this unspoken understanding amongst the judiciary that there is something called the signature tune of remorse and we better understand what is what are these expectations that we have and how are they really disadvantaging certain groups. Or advantaging certain groups. Um, I think in, in something I read of yours, there was a defence lawyer who was uh, saying, um, or, or a judge um, who was concerned that uh, lawyers might be telling their clients to chuck a sad, very Australian term, in order to kind of convince them that they were being, that they were remorseful. Yes, yes. So the lawyer was, you know, that idea that the lawyer would, you know, say to the client, chuck a sad, but not too much of a sad, in terms of sort of trying to, you need to show deference in, in the courtroom, but also start to kind of enact, and this is what, what Richard's written about beautifully, is a, is an arc of acknowledgement, suffering and self-transformation. So, you know, if a lawyer can tell a story of an offender where they have completely acknowledged their offence, that they've suffered, they're suffering, you know, in the sense that they're full of terrible regret and remorse about what they've done and then showing some kind of self-transformation, that arc is a sort of remorse arc. It's an arc of contrition. And then um, another um, a colleague once said to me, you know, remorse is a, is a white middle-class luxury. So looking at, you know, <laughs> who even can perform that who has the kind of narrative competence to do that, who's got the cultural capital to do it. So it, you're right to ask, you know, who is advantaged by this? Very interesting. This is The Law Report. I'm, I'm Damien Carrick and today a special conversation exploring the role of emotion in our legal system. My guests are law professor Susan Bandis, Emeritus Law and Society professor Richard Weissman and Kate Rossmanith, associate professor. Let's now move on to post trial remorse. Richard Weissman, what about convicted offenders serving a prison sentence who appear before a parole board? What is the role of expressing remorse at that point in time? And there is, a, I believe, a very famous case in Canada involving a Mr. Robert Latimer. Can you tell me about that? Robert Latimer committed a crime that is probably one of the most controversial cases in Canada in the last 30 years. He ended the life of his 12-year-old daughter, who was severely disabled, and she was about to receive an, a half an operation for which she could not take a painkiller that could alleviate her pain. And he chose to end her life, and the argument that he made in his own defense was that he first of all, he had to make decisions for her because she was developmentally delayed, and secondly, because prolonged pain arguably is worse than death. And that's the argument that he made. And he sustained and committed himself to that. When he was found guilty, he said that what he did was right. And then when he came, when he was convicted and came before the parole board, he continued to say that he felt he was still right in making that decision. The parole board, their perception of the situation is that when someone's convicted of a crime that's that serious and doesn't show remorse, they're capable of committing an equally serious crime in the future. So remorse is connected with with recidivism. The lack of remorse means someone would more likely offend. The presence of remorse would mean that they'd be more likely to not offend in the future. The problem with that case is that a lot of people felt sympathetic towards him and that, in fact, his decision was a humane decision and that he was right not to feel remorse and to assert that he didn't feel remorse. And a lot of Canadians felt that that was the correct moral decision. I should mention that while he was turned down by the 
parole board on those grounds, the social pressure to change that decision was so great that the parole board reversed itself within three months and actually allowed him parole. So uh, it can show what can happen when the parole board makes a decision and the community uh, decides that the person who didn't show remorse had good reasons for not showing remorse because the action they took was morally acceptable to many Canadians. So you can draw your own conclusions from that. It's fascinating because uh, sentencing decisions, you know, uh, they're informed by, I guess, five purposes, you know, punishment, deterrence, uh, rehabilitation, denunciation, community protection. Where does remorse fit into all of these? And and does it fit in neatly into those set of important guiding principles? I actually don't think that remorse advances any legitimate penological purpose. If we're worried about retribution, the just desert for the crime, then the remorse after the fact is not relevant to that. If we're worried about deterrence, deterrence relies on expected and consistent consequences. So once you throw you know, the remorse of the individual into that equation, it becomes less predictable. The only remotely relevant thing I think would be this argument that in a sense the defendant is rehabilitating herself or himself by feeling remorse. Uh, You know, in the U.S., sadly, we don't talk about rehabilitation as a purpose of punishment anymore. I wish we did, but I think we could have an interesting debate about whether we should give people a break on their sentence because they are imposing their own suffering. I, I actually, you know, I'm sort of concerned about how we would start measuring how much to take off for this, you know, self-imposed punishment. So my bottom line is I actually don't think that it does serve any legitimate penological purpose. Before we wrap this up, Kate Rossmanith, I understand that um, you've been looking at how people engage in rehabilitation programs in jail. Um, this does help make you eligible for parole. What have you been looking at? That was sorry. I'm going to say, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so that was a while ago um, when I was, and I wasn't looking at um, the programs themselves. But I spoke with parolees who had emerged from prison and talked to them about their prison experience, but also ideas about remorse assessment. And you know, there was certainly one parolee I spoke with who, as part of his rehabilitation program in the prison that he was in, had sort of been required to write his own autobiography as a kind of, I don't know, enactment, I guess, of self-insight to sort of show the prison psychologist that he was aware of what had caused his crime, you know, his what was the underneath driver of why he was, you know, committing whatever crimes he was committing. But he wrote this kind of um, autobiography and then the the prison psychologists were not happy with it um, and asked him to rewrite it because he'd sort of given the wrong story of himself. That was quite an extraordinary um, encounter with with that parolee and, and speaks again to this point that Richard's made quite a lot, which is this idea of the kind of need for self-insight or this is what the, what the institution wants, this idea that they want some kind of demonstration of self-insight. So he wasn't sufficiently repentant? Was that the problem? The problem was that he gave the wrong story. So he talked about the underlying causes of his crime. He was um, had been in jail for armed robbery as because he'd grown up in 
a sort of state of poverty and simply had started stealing things when he was young. This is his story and how the crimes had grown bigger and bigger, obviously, to up to armed robbery, but it had all stemmed from the fact that he was, he said, you know, he had a very incredibly poor upbringing where they were scrambling for food and other things. The psychologist came to him and said, no, we think that your criminal behaviour, the root cause of it is that you didn't have a father figure growing up. And so they wanted him to rewrite the autobiography to narrate that he didn't have a father figure and he was unloved. So he did, he did rewrite it, but he was angry about it because he he actually said he felt quite loved by his family. Yes, there was no father in the picture, but he actually said he felt quite loved. So in conclusion... What do you reckon? Should emotion be allowed in the courtroom? Should we be looking, trying to ascertain, trying to quantify remorse? Uh, A quick closing comment from each of you. Susan Bandis. So I don't think there's any way that even if we wanted to, we could keep emotion out of the courtroom. And I, I don't think that's the goal because... The law is just a, a massive apparatus for predicting behavior and evaluating behavior and modeling behavior. And how can we do any of that without a, an, an adequate notion or, or some effort to, to understand emotion, which is one of the main drivers of behavior? So I think the lesson that I take away from our discussion of remorse and my study of remorse is that the problems come in when we drive it underground, when we ignore it, when we when we don't evaluate it. For example, like when we send juries into the jury room with no instruction and they just rely on their own instinct and folk knowledge. If we know that they're going to start talking about remorse, then let's figure out whether it does serve a purpose in the law. And if it does, let's start educating them. So emotion is not going away. And, and you know, putting our fingers in our ears and, and humming la 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 is not going to make it go away. So let's learn about it and deal with it. Richard Weissman. I think the question that people ask and that courts ask a person who's committed a crime, how do you feel about what you did? Whether or not the answer to that actually predicts whether they're not going to reoffend is so important that it really would be hard to eliminate Maybe not. I feel that some of the unstated functions of the law are so powerful, which is to say that this is how you should feel. When you commit a crime, when anything is criminalized, the expectation is you will feel remorse for it. It's unexpected and unacceptable if you commit a crime and you don't feel remorse for it. So whether or not remorse accomplishes what the law wants it to, of rehabilitation and so forth, I feel that the defining of how you should feel is so important a function of law that it can't be eliminated. Kate Rosmanoff. I feel that moving forward, there's hope in the sense that our judiciary is hopefully becoming more and more diverse. And I think in that is going to mean we're going to have just more nuanced conversations about what emotion is doing in the law generally and how best to approach it. I think that our national judicial education programs are developing more and more as well and judges are more and more aware of the role of emotion in human decision making. And so I think those things are going to mean that we're going to hopefully just see more equitable kind of ways in which something like remorse assessment is even dealt with in the first place. 
What an interesting conversation. Kate Ross-Manneth, Associate Professor in Media and Cultural Studies at Macquarie University, Emeritus Professor in Law and Society at uh, York University in Toronto, Richard Wiseman, and also Law Professor Susan Bandis from DePaul University in Chicago. Look, thank you. Thank you very much for an intriguing and thought-provoking and disturbing conversation. I thank you all. Thanks, thank you Damien. so much, Damien. Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. And the trio recently addressed a gathering of judges and the legal community at the New South Wales Supreme Court. That's all we have time for today. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Christina Miltiadu. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.